We're going to get going. And by the way, just, just as a shout out, a bunch of us got to go over to Vanguard last night and they have a, a showing of the spelling bee going on right now. And if you guys like uh, going to see plays or musicals, I highly encourage you guys to check that out because it's wonderful. It's a, a wonderful uh, group of actors and people who love Jesus, who are doing some wonderful things in our community. I just want to support them. So there you go. There's a shout out. was not part of the plan, but awesome. Um, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm so glad that you're here today. And we are actually on the second week of a series that we're calling Brand New. And we're not calling this Brand New because we are not creative and couldn't come up with a better title. We simply recognize that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he came to inaugurate something that was Brand New. It was totally different from the other ways of approaching God that mankind had been doing since the very beginning um, where, you know, it was really, you, you can go from any religious expression throughout history and can boil it down to what we are calling the temple model. And the temple model goes something like this. There are sacred places, places that you go to because you feel like you're closer to God in those places or you're closer to whatever deity that you happen to worship. And within those sacred places, there's some sacred texts, whether they are scrawled upon the wall or they are written in stained glass, or they are written in a scroll, or in a book. And then there are sacred people, usually men, who have access to those sacred texts within those sacred places, and they tell the sincere worshipers, the sincere people who show up to try to worship that deity, how they're supposed to worship, and the proper way to worship. And because of the way that this system is set up, those sacred people have an unbelievable power over the sacred worshipers because they are the ones who interpret that text. They are the ones who tell people the proper way to worship. And Jesus showed up and he said, no, 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 that is not what I'm interested in. I'm inaugurating something brand new. It is not Temple 2.0. It is radically different. Because what I am inaugurating is not a worship of a place, I make people, not places, sacred. I say, Wendy, you are sacred. You are sacred. And you are sacred and you are sacred. Because when you're standing on the most holy spot that you can think of in the entire world, the person standing on your right and on your left is far more sacred than any plot of ground ever could be. And Jesus said, I'm not starting a... a, a something that, that makes monuments. I am starting a movement of people where they get to be the community of Christ followers. They get to be the church rather than inviting people to come to church. Jesus also said, listen, I am starting a brand new covenant with God that says you don't have to go through some spiritual middleman to have relationship with me. You can come just as you are and I will love you. We can have relationship because I am coming to give you access back to the Father so that you don't need to rely on a sacred person to get you connected to him. He also said, I'm bringing a brand new kingdom ethic that boils all 630 of the laws found in the Old Testament down to a single verb, love. And then I'm going to ascribe that word to God and to one another that you do community life with and then to your neighbors beyond the walls of this building. 
Love, love, love. And the the thing about the temple model and with this brand new thing that Jesus was bringing is that it was not simply a new version of that temple model. Because the temple model, within that temple model, you have these sacred people who are saying, listen, here's what the texts mean. Because of that, they get to determine and soften certain parts of the text that they struggle with. So the sacred people can always stand in front of all of the other worshipers and say, hey, I've got this together. And I hope you can too, but I'm okay. I got this figured out. And Jesus showed up and goes, ah, no, that's, that's not going to work. But rather than lowering the bar so that everybody could make it, he did something just the opposite. He raised the bar so high that even the sacred people, even the professional Christ followers, could not do it by their own strength, could not ever consider themselves good enough because of their efforts. And once he had pushed it so high that the playing field was level and we had all fallen short, he then said, now I'm coming to give my life to pay the penalty that you could never pay yourself. I am going to purchase you out of slavery to your inability to follow the rules so that you can be reconciled into relationship with God. Now we are all saved by grace, not by your efforts. The temple model would say something like, hey, if you, you know, it is all about your relationship with God and you need to make sure that you are in right standing with God. And Jesus came along and said, listen, if you're going to the temple, if you are going to a sacred place to worship God, to bring an offering to him, and you realize that a family member or a, a, a fellow student or a coworker has something against you, Forget about bringing your offering to first go and take care of your relationship with them and then come back and offer it because God can wait. The temple model was built on this idea that these gods or deities resided in a particular place and people would go there to worship them and that those deities really only cared about the place in which they were at. And so you start having regional gods that people would worship. And this actually percolated even into the Jewish mindset. When they thought of the creator and sustainer of everything, they thought they had a monopoly on him. They thought that he was the God of the Jews alone. And they they were his people. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You are God's people, but you have been chosen to be his representative so that the whole world can know me because this brand new thing I'm coming to inaugurate, this is for everybody, for every man, woman, and child who has ever breathed the breath of life in their nostrils and stepped a foot on this planet. This is for all of them. And as word got out about this brand new thing, many of the Gentiles, who simply a a big word for saying non-Jewish people, The Gentiles grabbed hold of this brand new thing and got excited about it, and they were in. They chose to not only embrace the gospel, but they chose to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior and to follow him with all of their hearts. And some of the Jews did as well. They embraced Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. But here's the thing. It's really difficult when you are raised within the temple model to be able to let go of it. When you are raised with a certain way of worshiping and a certain way of approaching God, it's really, really hard to switch gears and let go of that to take hold of something brand new. And for the Jews, 
they could not in good conscience let go of the temple model that they had been raised in and trained in and had beaten into their heads in order to take hold of this brand new thing that is built off of grace. And so they did what any normal worshiper would do that's trying to reconcile two different things. They tried to fit Jesus into the temple model. They tried to bring them together into some new hybrid. The problem is that the old temple model and this brand new movement that Jesus was inaugurating were completely and utterly incompatible. They just didn't realize it at the time. And the other thing is that it brought them into sharp conflict with the other Gentile believers because the Gentiles didn't have the same issue. They weren't raised with the temple model. They were not worshiping in the same way. So they could just grab hold of Jesus as he was. And they're like looking around going, this isn't right. And it created this unbelievable amount of conflict in the early church. So we're in a series that we're calling brand new because we are unpacking the way that the temple model has percolated into the church and even into the way that we worship. And next week, we are going to spend a lot of time looking at how that temple model affects us today in the church and how we've gotten here. But today, what I want to do is I want to give the foundation to that. I want to look at how the temple model percolated into the early church and how it challenged this brand new movement that Jesus was inaugurating. And I want to look at the way that the early Christ followers had to fight against the temptation to hold on to the temple model and just make this brand new movement Temple 2.0. Does that make sense? In order to do this, we're actually going to go back to a, a, a part of the Bible that we've actually spent quite a bit of time in this year, and that is the book of Galatians. And so for those of you who have been around this year, particularly around Easter time and after, hopefully, hopefully what I'm about to share with you will feel like review. I hope it is because that means you're getting it and that it's connecting and that it has found purchase in your heart. So I'm hoping that this feels like review because here's the thing. I am convinced that we more often than not need to be reminded of things way more often than we need to be taught new things. I can't tell you how many things I have forgotten, and I just need to be reminded of them again and again and again. That's why the Israelites had this tendency to build piles of rocks. They have these altars. If you guys go to the back table, you'll see that we have a big jar of rocks. Those are just some of our altars of remembrance, of remembering the good things that God has done because we forget them so easily when we find ourselves in another position where we're like, ah, I've come to the end of myself. And it's like, yeah, we've all been here. We were here not too long ago. We're going to be here again, and God is faithful even in those moments. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. The entire book of Galatians really does focus on this question of how can we let go of the old in order to take hold of this brand new thing. Galatians chapter 5 encapsulates it in such a way that we can kind of get the whole heart of it in one short section. But I want to tell you just a little bit of, of backstory here. So the person writing this letter is a guy named Paul. And Paul is intimately familiar with the temple model because he was trained and raised in it. He was a trained Pharisee. He was one of those guys who had gone to school to be the sacred person residing in the sacred place, giving his interpretation on the sacred text to all of the other worshipers. And he was zealous, zealous for, the, the, for God. And he was zealous for the temple movement. And right from the beginning, Paul realized that the temple model and this brand new thing Jesus was bringing were completely and utterly incompatible. He saw that. And he realized that if, if other Jews 
tried to bring Jesus and force him into their way of approaching God than like trying to fill an old wineskin with new wine. It was just going to cause it to burst. And, and, and the Jewish way of approaching God would just be utterly destroyed. And so he actually fought this brand new movement, the gospel message. He tried to stamp it out before it could ever really take root. In fact, it was Paul who we see in the book of Acts presiding over the, the stoning of the first Christian martyr giving his approval to it because in his mind he was honoring and serving God by stamping out the the spread of the gospel message. But then when Jesus got a hold of his heart, kind of waylaid him on on a road to another city where he was going to try to stamp out the gospel there as well. When God got a hold of his heart and he realized that in fighting Jesus, he was actually fighting against God, Paul's entire heart changed It's not that he became less zealous. He just realized, I've been fighting against God. I've been pushing against God. Now I'm going to go with him. And so he became, instead of the greatest opponent of the gospel, he became one of the greatest proponents for it. And much of the New Testament is written by Paul, including this letter. And what Paul would do is he would go from city to city, and he would typically... uh, he didn't, res- he didn't spend his time in Jerusalem or in, in Israel so much as he liked to go beyond Israel to the Gentile nations. And he practiced something that we've called um, cultural acupuncture, meaning you go into some of these central nervous air- system areas, right? And in normal acupuncture, you put a needle into the nervous system of, of one area and it helps to relax the nerves all around it. And he did the same thing socially. He would go to a town, And he would go in and he would share the gospel there, knowing that if he could get a foothold in that area, it would then spread to the surrounding areas and he'd be able to change that whole region with the gospel message. And so he would go into one of these Gentile towns. It was full of mainly Gentiles, non-Jews, but there would also be some Jewish people in there. And he would share the gospel. And the gospel would go something like this. We've all fallen short of God's righteous standards. All of us are deserving of death. Because remember, you need to know, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You need to know how wretched you are before you recognize just how amazing that grace really is. So he would start, we've all fallen short, but our Father God loves us more than we could ever possibly fathom. And he has made a way for us prodigals to come home. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh and to come to earth. And Jesus died on a cross, bled out for us, so that we could be reconciled to God. So do not fight him because he loves you. He invites you to come and be reconciled to him. And and he would share the gospel message. And within any given town, people would embrace it. More often than not, it was Gentiles predominantly, but some Jews would also grab hold of it. And he would take these new believers and he would create what we call in Greek an ecclesia, a gathering or an assembly of people. And, and it would be similar to what we have in here. And, and for weeks and months, he would spend time sharing the gospel with them and explaining to them, what does it look like to follow God and have relationship with him? And after a few months, sometimes even a couple of years, Paul would then go on to the next town and he would go and start sharing the gospel there as well. But here's what would happen all the time. When he would leave that town, shortly thereafter, a group of Jewish believers would follow right on his heels. And those Jewish believers 
would say, hey, I, I hear that Paul shared the gospel with you and that, that he was saying that God wants you to be reconciled to God. That is true. But if you want to be reconciled with God, then you've got to do A, B, C, and D. Because remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So if you want to take hold of Jesus, you've got to be Jewish. And, and although it was never Paul's heart, these Jewish believers would try to inject the temple model into these fledgling groups of Christ followers, what we've come to know as the church. He would tr- they would try to inject the temple model back into it by heaping rules and regulations and all of the old traditions back onto them. And when Paul heard about this, and particularly that this had happened in the region of Galatia, he is irate. And that's to put it lightly. I mean, he's like a father who walks back into the alley and sees his children shooting up heroin with a neighbor kid who's, who's, who's brought this. And he is like, what are you doing? Don't you realize that your life is at stake here? And so he comes down hard. His, his tone in this letter is so different from any of his other letters because he's passionate about making sure that they do not miss the point. And he has very little love for these people through whom this false teaching has come. You're going to see in some of the things he says, he's not pulling his punches because this is a matter of eternal life and death. And so we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Listen, guys, Jesus died to free you from the shackles of the law, to free you from this system where you have to simply try harder and harder to be good because you could never be good enough. He has set you free from that. And he has paid the penalty to take the shackles of the rules and legalism off of your wrists. So do not turn back around and walk back into that jail cell that he freed you from and put those shackles of rule following back on. It's for freedom you've been set free. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Just show of hands here. Who here has been circumcised? No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Put her down. Cheryl, put your hand down. When I'm talking about circumcision here, when Paul is referring to circumcision here, some people are like, oh, oops, that was awkward. You know? When Paul is talking about circumcision here, he is not talking about our modern understanding and purpose for circumcision because today... People get circumcised mainly for um, health reasons. In that day and age, particularly for the Jews, circumcision was done in a symbolic way. It pretty much played the same role that this wedding ring plays for me. Because I made a covenant 13 years ago with Kathy that I no longer was my own man, that she and I together were unified. We did that between God and ourselves and our family and our friends. And I wear this as a tangible reminder, not only to other people, but to me, that the choices I make do not affect solely myself. And in the same way, circumcision, although probably most people wouldn't see it, hopefully, um, 
the, the act of being circumcised was a tangible reminder in the flesh that I am not my own. I have been covenanted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I belong to Yahweh, and I follow him completely. And for Paul, circumcision pretty much summed up an embracing of the old rules, the Mosaic law, the old temple model. Circumcision becomes for him in this letter... The, the summation of all of that. And he says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, well, then you can't possibly also take hold of Christ. You've got to let that go in order to take hold of him. Christ will have no power for you anymore. Verse 3. Again, because in case he didn't get it the first time, he's going to reiterate what he's just said. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Because for the Jews who are becoming Christians, they were turning the old law and the old traditions into a sort of legalistic buffet. And they were going in and saying, I, I want Jesus. At the end of the day, that's my dessert. Grace is good. But I, I can't let go of all of this. So they bring their tray and they would take a little bit of circumcision and they would take a little bit of the, the Sabbath kind of keeping stuff and they would take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and they would leave a lot of the other stuff. But they said, hey, we're going to bring this and Jesus together and that is going to be enough. And Paul's saying, don't you get it? If you try to hold on to even just a little bit of this, then you're obligated to obey all of it. And in that process of holding on to the old, you can't take hold of the new. He goes on, verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated, pushed away from Christ. You are, you are actually alienating yourself from him. You're pushing him at arm's length because you won't let go of this. You have fallen away from grace. Let's pause there for just a moment. Because grace is one of those words that you hear within the church a whole lot. It is definitely one of our favorite Christianese words. And if you're not familiar with what grace really means, grace is simply getting something that you don't deserve. An unexpected and certainly undeserved gift. And the thing I find with our human tendency is that we pretty much get uncomfortable when somebody offers us something that we don't feel like we deserve. And a lot of times we want to temper that. We want to try to, we want to lower the audacity of the gift. Kathy and I ran into this just about a month and a half ago. Um, for the last several months, uh, we've been having some vehicle issues with both of our cars. N neither of them were really truly reliable for us. And so Kathy goes, honey, we're going to have to buy a new used car. I go, I totally know it. I know we have to. But with all the stuff going on at the church, I honestly don't have enough mental space to think about it. Can we just hit pause? Can we hit snooze on the buying of a new vehicle for like two months till August? And she acquiesced. She says, okay, that's fine. We can wait till August. I know, Alice. I'm sorry. She wanted it a lot sooner too. June and July fly by. It's now July 29th. I have two days before I have to start thinking about this. I get a phone call from a, a, a friend I consider a brother. He and his wife live in Taiwan, but they had been out visiting. And he says, hey, Eric, my wife and I have this car that sits at my parents' house pretty much all year long. We use it for a week when we're out here. 
we don't have a whole lot of need for it, and we've been praying about it, and we would like to give it to you and Kathy. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm, you know, this isn't just any car. Okay, this is a 2008 Mercedes-Benz SUV with only 75,000 miles on it. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, we'd like to give it to you. I go, yeah, but like, can, can we pay you for it? He's like, you can't afford this. We want... <laughs> You're saying because I'm a pastor? Yes. I'm, no. We want to give it to you. Talk about a gift that is so far beyond what anything we could have ever asked for or expected uncomfortably so, so uncomfortable that I'm making a point to tell you so that when you see Kathy driving around in this thing, you won't think your pastor is skimming off the top. But imagine if when he makes that phone call, in my discomfort on the audacity of that gift, I say, hey, I can't... Can I give you $10,000 for it? I know that won't cover the whole, whole cost, but can I give you $10,000? No. We want to give it to you. How about seven fifty? Can I give you $75,000? You know? No. It's, how about five? Th- can I give you 5000 What if at some point he said yes? Sure, Eric, you can give us 5000 In that moment, that would cease to be a gift. And at this point, I have purchased that vehicle at discount. And in the same way, Jesus did not die on the cross to purchase our salvation and to offer it to us at a discount. He did not say, I will die for you, but first you must do A, B, C, and D. Yes, I will die for you and I will call you saved, but then you must do C, D, E, and F and somehow make payments on it. It's not like he put our salvation on layaway and now we've got to pay it off before we can get it. He said, I have died to set you free. It is by grace you have been saved, by faith, not by works, so that none of you can say, look at what I've done. I've arrived. I have done it. I've paid the price. I have saved myself. None of us can stand upon that footing. All of us are saved by grace, an undeserved gift. And yes, it's uncomfortable because it's audacious. The fact that God would sacrifice himself for us so that we could be back in relationship with him, that's embarrassing. And for us prodigals who have wandered far from home, for those of us even now who find ourselves kind of holding on to stuff that we don't want to let go of, it's embarrassing sometimes. To go, you forgive me even of this? Yes, even of that. I love you. I want relationship with you. Let it go and come home. Paul continues in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, being circumcised or not being circumcised has no value at all. That, That symbolism has lost its value in light of the new covenant that Jesus is bringing. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, that's an easy verse for us to kind of glance over, look at. You probably might be familiar with it, and you move on. And you would miss the seismic shift theologically that he is pointing to in that verse. I'm going to go back to it for just a moment. The only thing that counts is our faith, our vertical relationship, expressing itself, and the Greek term there is working itself out. So our faith in God working itself out and working itself out and working itself out in our love for one another. 
wait a minute. What about the Ten Commandments, right? What about them? What about the 620 other laws in the Old Testament? All of those, the only thing that counts is our faith expressing itself through love. And by the way, if this makes you uncomfortable, it means you're paying attention. If you think that this is a little bit of an overstatement, so did the Jewish Christians. That's why they struggled with this so stinking much. But here's the point. Here's what Paul is getting at. Under the temple model, it is all focused on our vertical relationship with God. How am I doing? God, what do you think about me? Right? You know, I did this this week. I didn't do that. I I, I stopped doing that. Well, I gave it to it one time. But seriously, I'm trying. And, And I was nice to that person when they cut me off. I didn't honk for more than like five seconds. I was better this time. I didn't like wave to them with one finger or anything like that. God, I'm trying. How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? And when we get focused on this, we, take, we, we forget about the fact that God is for us. Because remember, anyone who is willing to die for you is for you. And we get focused on somehow feeling like we need to earn it back and be good enough and keep trying harder. And we turn it back into a reiteration of the temple model. And in so doing when we're looking up and we're worried and we're kind of like crouching, afraid that he's going to smack us with a lightning bolt or something, in that moment, we actually take our eyes off of the very people that Jesus Christ died to save, the very people that he has called us to be representatives and ambassadors of hope to. And Paul is saying, the only thing that matters is in our vertical relationship that we work out this relationship by loving people around us us. That is how we love God, is by loving others. Does that make sense? It's a big shift, because for the Jews, they were all about doing the right things and jumping through the right religious hoops so they could be right here, and in the process, they ground the people around them under their heel. They threw them to the wolves if it would make them look good. Because make no mistake, when we get insecure here, we stop looking at our neighbors with love and we start comparing ourselves to them. We start going, well, you know, how am I doing? How am I doing? Well, I'm better than them. I mean, look at how ridiculous they are. At least I don't do that. And we judge them and we hold them at arm's length and it builds a sense of arrogance and self-centeredness and distance When God is saying, I want you to be my representatives and I want them, when they interact with you, to know you by the way you love. It's real hard to know us by our love when we're spending all of our time judging other people. Verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion didn't come from the one who calls you. Because a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. My wife and I love to watch this show, The Great British Bake Off. Yeah, you know? They're the Great British Baking Show. I love watching people with awful teeth bake some beautiful things. It's amazing. And, and, and one of the things that's really fun to watch is when they will take a little bit of flour, or a whole lot of flour, and, a, and salt and water, and they'll mix it in a bowl, and then they'll take this little pinch of yeast, and they'll add it into the mixture, and they'll create this ball of, of, of just glop. 
And then they stick this ball of glop in the bottom of a bowl, and they cover it with saran wrap, and they stick it into a warming tray, and they forget about it for about 45 minutes to an hour. And when they pull that thing out, that yeast has multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied until that little ball of glop has turned into this massive ball that they can then turn into a loaf of bread and it's permeated with the the bread holes, which I guess is really just the gas coming off of the bacteria that is yeast, which makes me really hungry right now, right? But that's what Paul is saying. In the same way that yeast will radically transform a ball of glop into this dough that you can use to bake bread. In the same way, just a little pinch of legalism will change the whole approach to God. Because you might say, I want to follow Jesus and take wholeheartedly hold of this brand new thing that he's invited me into. I want to hold on to grace. But if you take grace and add just a little pinch of legalism, guess what happens? Before too long, that legalism multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and it radically changes everything. And so Paul is saying, be careful. Because it will radically change the way you view people. You will stop viewing them as your brothers and your sisters created in Christ's image. You will stop viewing them as people that you have been called to love and you will start viewing them as competition. You'll start viewing the other churches around you as competition. You'll start viewing your neighbors who play their music just a little too loudly as an irritant that you wish would just go away. You'll start viewing people who think differently from you on a theological or a political matter as a problem that you would like to just go away as opposed to as men and women who have been created in Christ's image, people for whom Jesus Christ died, for whom he loves deeply, as much as he loves you and as much as he loves me, he loves them and he died for them just as much as he died for us. And he has called us not only to be in relationship with him, but to be his representatives. That's real hard to do when our legalism gets mixed back in. Because because it changes everything. So a little yeast works through the whole batch of Joe. Verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, as some of, the Pharisees, some of these legalistic Jews who were coming into the church were suggesting, hey, listen, Paul didn't spend enough time with you. He came in and, and gave you the, kind of the gospel message, which is good, but Paul really also supports circumcision and all of the law-keeping. He just didn't have time to get to it. So he's for that, too. He says, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why am I being persecuted? Why are they continually yelling at me saying, no, you're missing the point, Paul? I'm obviously not. They don't like what I'm saying. In that case, if I were still preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, let me ask you a question for a moment. What is the offense of the cross? What makes the cross offensive? I'll tell you, for a legalist, who finds their identity and finds their value based upon how well they keep the law, the cross is offensive because it not only says that we don't have to earn our standing with God based upon how well we do this, but it has the audacity to suggest that we couldn't make ourselves righteous by our observation of the law. That is something that a legalist simply cannot abide. 
Because it says your approach to God is a broken stairway to heaven. And you can keep trying to climb that thing all day long, but you're not getting anywhere. As for those agitators, and this is where Paul takes the gloves off and he goes right, right to the throat of these legalistic Jews who are trying to change the whole thing and add that, that yeast of the Pharisees back in. He says, as for those agitators, those people who are saying you need to get circumcised, well, I wish they would go the whole way and just emasculate themselves. Ooh, ooh, that one hurts, right? It's like, Paul, yeah, I wish, you know what? They think it's so important to get circumcised. I wish the knife would slip. Okay. And the reason that he is so upset, I mean, think about it. If you, had your, you found your kid out in the alleyway shooting up with somebody, do you think you'd be upset at the person who gave them their first hit? Absolutely. And so he is saying, this is a matter of eternal life and death, and I'm not pulling my punches anymore. Aren't you just talking about love, Paul? Anyway, verse 13. Because here's the thing. Here's the problem. And here's the number one argument against grace. Or against grace alone, at least. If the laws don't count, if they no longer hold sway over us, if we are truly free, well then, aren't you releasing people to try to figure it out on their own? Aren't you basically throwing them to the wolves? I mean, go back to Israel's history. Go back to the time of the judges. And what do we read time and again as we were studying through that book? That everybody did as they saw fit. And the kingdom of Israel was in shambles because nobody had a direction. They, had, they lost their true north. And, and, we're, and the Jews are going, wait a minute, Paul. If you say we're free, yeah, but free for what? Paul recognizes that concern and he addresses it right now, which I'm very glad that he did because we need this kind of uh, caveat in what he's saying. He says, you, my brothers and my sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, Serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember when Jesus took all of the law and all of the prophets and said, it all points to me. I have fulfilled it. In dying on the cross, I've canceled the blood debt. And now you can sum it all up in two two commands. Love God, love one another. That's it. It's that simple. And Paul says the same thing. The only thing that matters is our faith expressing itself through love. All of it hangs on one verb, love. And that approach is very, very different from rule following. Because we might think we're good people. We might say, hey, you know what? We need the law. We, 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 we want the, the law to be lowered and, and, and we want to try to do our best. And he's saying you couldn't possibly do that if you wanted to. You do not have the freedom. And, and this is important. We are not freed up to sin. It is not a license to sin. Rather, it is a license to love. And that is a very different thing. 
Because I've not freed you. Jesus didn't bleed out on the cross to make us good little rule followers. But he also didn't bleed out on the cross so that we could live any way that we wanted. Be free, little birds. Do whatever you feel like. You're good to go. I got you covered. Instead, he said, I have freed you from the shackles of sin, from the shackles of law, obedience, so that you can follow me and you can be a reflection of my love to the people you come into contact with at school, at work, at Pete's Coffee, or wherever it is that you hang out. When you go to Mother's Market or when you go over to Trader Joe's, when you walk in there, you get to be my representatives. And the way that you interact with people, the way that you treat people, even when they mistreat you, that says something to them about who you follow. And it says something to them about my heart because you become a reflection of my heart. So you are free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, use your freedom as a license to love because all of the law is summed up in a single verb, love. Can you just imagine for a moment what that would look like if followers of Jesus Christ actually lived as if God was for us, and if we could actually rest in his love for us, we could stop worrying, how am I doing? How am I doing? Did you see what I did there? Did you see what I did there? Did you see how I responded to that? How am I doing? If we could stop worrying about that and rest because he's for us, And instead, we could begin to look around and say, how can I be a conduit of that same love to the people that I come into contact with on a daily basis, whether I know them or not? How can I love them at the park when I'm playing with my kids and they're there with their dog? How can I love them? How can I I care for somebody in the same way that God has cared for me and lavished his love upon me? Can you imagine how it would change the way we interact with people when they slight us? Or when we want to respond with anger and we remember you know what god is for me and he's been so patient with me god help me to be patient with them could you imagine how it might change the way we look at some of the things that we are tempted towards if we considered god you're for me and you love me now how can i be a reflection of that love to others in this instance it would change everything And so my my challenge to those of us who have said yes to that audacious gift of grace that Jesus Christ has lavished on us, my challenge to us this week is to remember your Father God is for you and He is for me. He showed us by the way Jesus loved us on that cross. And so now you not only get to rest in His love for you, but you actually get to be a reflection of it to everybody you come into contact with. So begin to pray, God, use me as a reflection of your love. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, but before I finish this morning, I, I don't want to miss this opportunity for those of you who might have found your way in here this morning. And you know about God. You've heard about Jesus. You know about the cross, but quite honestly you have not felt worthy or you have not yet taken hold of that gift because you're like, eh, I'm not really ready yet. I'm not ready to submit my life to him or I I don't feel worthy 
of his grace. I've been trying really hard to kind of get back on the right foot because quite honestly, I've been struggling a whole lot and I've been falling on my face a whole lot. And I just haven't been at that point where I felt worthy of it. And may I remind you that you will never get to the point where you are worthy of it. None of us have. And if it means being worthy, then I should not stand up here. Because I've fallen flat on my face more times than I even want to think about. And the beautiful thing about the gospel message is that he takes wrecks of human beings. He takes people who have run as far as they can in the opposite direction and found themselves covered in the muck of their choices. And he says, come home because I love you. And I, I love you more than those things that you've done. And I have made a way that those things no longer define you. So come home. Let me clean you up. And then let me rehabilitate you so that you get to now go and be a reflection of that love to the people you come into contact with. So if you are hearing the gospel message this morning and you realize you have not taken hold of this gift of grace that he bought for you, I want to give you an opportunity to take hold of it this morning. And it, and it begins with a prayer. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's different every time I pray it. But it is a, it is a way of saying thank you because the best way to receive a gift is not to pay for it, not to make up for it. It is simply to receive it and say thank you and then to use it. Your Father God loves you so much so that even when you have been in the depths of your rebellion, he sent Jesus to die for you. And he's saying, come home. And I'm about to pray a prayer. And if what I'm about to pray is the, is the cry of your heart, then I invite you to simply pray it along with me. You can do it internally. You can say it out loud. It doesn't matter. It goes like this. Father, thank you for loving me. And Jesus, thank you for being willing to die for me so that I could come home that I could be reconnected with my creator, with my God. I know I'm not deserving of this gift of grace. I know I never will be. But I accept it now. And Jesus, I invite you to save me, but I also invite you to be the Lord of my life. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and to begin to shape me into a reflection of your heart so that I can reflect your love to the people I come into contact with every day. I give you my life. Show me what that means. Jesus, in your name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, I want to know. I want to celebrate with you. And I also know that, that you're probably going to come under some attack this week. That there are going to be a lot of doubts that will begin to creep in. And there's going to be a lot of thoughts that will come back in. And the enemy, because we have an enemy who would love to take these little seeds of hope that have been planted in your heart and crush them before they can ever take root. 
And so Pastor Jeff and I would love to just come alongside of you and, and encourage you and maybe even help you get connected to some community so that you can continue to grow. Because we can't do this by ourselves. So my, my request of you is this. I'm not going to make you stand up right now. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But in your bulletins, there's a connection card. And my, my request is that you, if you prayed that prayer today, or if you are just wanting some support right now, that you would give us your contact information on your connection card, and then you would check off, yeah, you know what? I accepted Christ today. Or I'm interested in baptism, but I'm not really sure what that means. Or I just need prayer about A, B, C, or D. I don't, whatever it might be. Write that on your connection card, and we will contact you this week. Because we have been called to do life together. And we want to be a support for you in that. So Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the reminder that we don't stand up here because we're worthy. We stand up here and we can stand in your presence because of your grace. I pray that you would use us this week as a reflection of your love to everybody we come into contact with. I pray that you would help us to take hold of this brand new thing, this movement, where you use people, not places, to transform lives eternally. And I thank you that we can come directly to you, just as we are, and be used by you. So now we want to worship together as a family. We want to say thank you. So let's worship together now.